2 Timothy 3.16-4.4 All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The word of the Lord. Join me as we pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you here as we prepare to hear this word preached. And Father, we ask that your spirit would just be preparing our hearts and our minds to be illuminated, to have the light of the word shed upon it, so that we might not just be hearers of the word, but doers. Father, I pray that you would make me a a vessel that lets your word pass through. Father, hold me back from folly, from confusion. Give me clarity so that the word that is preached today is your word, is truth. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, so as uh, some of you may know, my previous life, but before I get started, I want to remind you that we do have a little sermon insert in your bulletin, and we have provided a basic outline of today's sermon so that you can follow along and keep that for your reference. Um, But anyways, as I was saying, uh, perhaps you may know, some of you don't, that in my former life, uh, I was an engineer at at an engineering firm up in my, uh, up in Kansas City where I grew up. And uh, being an engineer was was an adjustment for me. It wasn't uh, probably my first love, but I did it for several years. And one of the things that would happen in the firm I was in is I would be assigned not just to one project, but to usually multiple projects. And each of those projects would give me a different task list, different thing that they had to do. And it always put me in the quandary of figuring out um, whose work I was supposed to be doing at, at any given time, because... Everybody had about the same stature uh, over me. Everybody had about the same authority. And so they would come to me and they would say, uh, have you gotten uh, to work on that issue? Or have you gotten that complete? And said, no, I'm working on this other project, which wasn't, wasn't their project. And so they would always be uh, a little bit annoyed with me. And I always was struggling with whose work do I prioritize? Which one of these uh, projects gets uh, done first? And usually you try to pick the person who was higher up on the organization chart, but Sometimes they were always in the same place. It also gave me the opportunity to kind of play them off each other, which gave me more free time. Because, well, I'm working on so-and-so's project uh, because that person's project is more uh, urgent than yours. But it it led to a lot of stress because ultimately instead of having one person that was disappointed in me, I had sometimes three, four different bosses who were frustrated that that, uh, I wasn't getting what they wanted done when they wanted it done. And so what did I do with this situation? I finally said, enough is enough. I'm going to be a pastor. (laughs) Lucky you guys. Because nobody bosses the pastor around. It's, uh, in fact, when uh, our first week here, um, Henry, my eight-year-old, said to me on Monday when I said, I'm going into work, he said, why are you going into work? It's not Sunday. So even my own child has the idea that a pastor only works one day a week. So... 
We're learning. But that example of, of being in that workplace shows me and reminds me of what it's like to be under multiple authorities. And how do we live under multiple authorities? How do we prioritize them? The world that we live in bombards us with issues and messages that says, heed this, prioritize this, make this what your life is about. All you have to do is open up your Facebook feed to find a dozen things that you had never thought about that is apparently a raging hot issue that you need to get on one side or the other. And it is fatiguing. It is exhausting. There is so much urgency, so much attention that has to be cast to all these different problems. And the question that we have to ask as we look at them is, which one of these is most important? Which one of these has the authority over me that I need to respond to it with action? But that's not just a problem in the world. That's not just a problem on Facebook. That is a problem for the church. It is a problem for us as individual Christians. We are constantly facing the temptation to prioritize the world's priorities, to rely on the world's methods, to measure ourselves by the world's standards, to approve what the world says must be approved. The church is constantly facing the temptation from the world to move from God as authority to man. And the Protestant Reformation, which we are coming into our 500th year, our 500th anniversary, shows us the seriousness of this temptation. 500 years ago, the Roman Catholic Church had begun to give greater weight to traditions, to human ideas, than to the scriptures. These human traditions had gotten to a place where they spoke as loud or even more loudly than the scriptures. And even worse, these human traditions conflicted and contradicted and undermined the scriptures. So that it came to a point that, the, that there were practices in the Roman Catholic Church that were being held as more important than the commands of scripture, the gospel itself. One of the most egregious examples of this was the selling of indulgences. The idea that if you gave money to the church, you could chop off years of your past relatives' time in purgatory or even buy a pass for future sins. This, of course, has nothing to do with the gospel of grace that we find in the Bible. And so there was a monk named Luther, who in, in studying the Bible and becoming uh, aware of the biblical gospel, realized how astray the church had gone in following these human traditions, that in October of 1517, he went to his church and he nailed what are the 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg to say, we have gone astray. And I want to debate this issue of selling the indulgences. This, of course, did not please the church, and the church decided to bring Luther under trial. They commanded him to recant his position, which was threatening the authority of the Catholic Church. He was under the threat of death, and yet after he girded himself, he could not recant. And he said these very famous words, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scripture or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted 
and my conscience is captive to the word of God, I cannot and will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. In short, the Reformation was a callback to the Bible as our ultimate authority and a callback to the biblical gospel as the one and only gospel. That is why I have decided to start our very first series with the, the five solas of the gospel because the five solas of the gospel capture what it is I am in the business of preaching and leading this church into. The gospel that I preach is simply this, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, in accordance with the scriptures alone, and all to the glory of God alone. The image that we have have selected for this series is to evoke the idea of a constitution. And the reason is that these five solas represent the foundation of the ministry that we as a church are to be about. It is not just a foundation, but it is also the articles that govern all that we do. If we drift from these solas, we drift from the gospel that we are called to proclaim. We become unconstitutional. Today, then, we are going to look at that second article of our constitution as a church, which is Scripture alone. Now, when we say Scripture alone, we are saying that Scripture is our final and highest authority in all things in which it speaks. Upholding the ultimate authority of Scripture is essential to being a gospel-centered church. Because the scriptures are where God has deposited his gospel. The preaching of the gospel rises or falls in relation to the church's commitment to scripture. We are looking at scripture alone right after Christ alone for an important reason. Because I want you to understand the close relationship that we have between confessing Christ alone and upholding Scripture alone. The Scriptures, first and foremost, are about Christ. Jesus said this after his resurrection in Luke chapter 24. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The Old Testament scriptures are centered and focused and about Christ. And the scriptures that we have in our hand are the word of Christ. As Paul says in Colossians 3.16, these are the word of Christ. We do not read these scriptures as another authority. We read these scriptures as Christ speaking to us. So as we confess Christ alone, we honor him as Lord through upholding Scripture alone. In order to establish uh, the the, the need for our church to be committed to Scripture alone, we are going to look at the last letter that Paul wrote, 2 Timothy. He wrote this in prison. He wrote this under the fear of death. The likelihood that he was about to die was imminent. And so he wrote this letter to Timothy to crystallize the most essential things that he must make sure are in order as he leaves the scene as an apostle. And the very last command that he gives to Timothy before turning to a few personal matters is the scripture that we read today. 
It was essential to Paul as he saw himself leaving the scene that the scriptures were held high so that the gospel that he preached was not lost. He thus calls Timothy to renew his commitment to the scripture alone by reminding him of these four attributes that make it our ultimate rule for faith and practice. So as we look at this text today, we are going to see these four attributes of Scripture that make it our ultimate rule. Let's turn now to the text in front of us. Paul tells Timothy in verse 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. And in this simple phrase, we have the first of these two attributes. The first attribute is that God's Word is authoritative. All scripture is breathed out by God. In the Greek, this phrase, breathed out by God, is one word, theopanoustos. Now, I'm not here to give you Greek every time, but it is important to understand that in this word are the two, uh, two essential attributes of God's word to us. So that first part of this word, theo, is God. And the second part of that word, panoustos, is breath or exhalation. And so the idea is that God is the source and that the nature of God's word is that it's the breath of God. So let's look first of all at its source, that first part. Scripture is authoritative because it is, it is from God. Consider in your, in your daily life, consider at your workplace, if you picked up a command that was on your desk that said, go clean the bathroom, do you just immediately follow that command? I suppose I would want to know, well, where did that command come from? That command is from a coworker who just doesn't want to clean the bathroom. I'm not going to go clean the bathroom. But if you flip the page over and you saw the CEO has come to your desk, dropped off a note, says, go clean the bathroom, then my response to that command changes dramatically, doesn't it? I think very seriously about not following the command that has been given to me by the CEO of the company. And I recognize there are serious consequences if I decide willfully to not obey the command given by the CEO. And so it is very important as we read the scriptures in our hand that we grasp its source. The source of our scriptures are from God. And therefore, it comes from the very highest possible authority. That means that when we pick up the Bible, we don't primarily pick it up and say, isn't this fascinating literature? We don't pick up the Bible and say, isn't this fascinating historical data? We don't pick it up to say, isn't this an interesting insight into an ancient culture or an ancient religion? No, we pick up the scripture and we hear, this is from God. And the only appropriate response to scripture is to respond with obedience, to respond to it with reverence. And so when we understand Scripture's authority is from God. It means that when we come to Scriptures, we do not come to evaluate the Scriptures. The Scriptures evaluate us. No word of man 
has the right to say yes where God has said no. And no word of man has the right to say no where God has said yes. There is no amount of intelligence or information or reasoning or experience that we can acquire that will ever come to the point of justifying overruling the command or the word of God. Scripture has ultimate authority. Now, when we recognize this concept, I think we see clearly what sin really is. Sin is rebellion against God's authority, God's right to be God. This is what was happening in the Garden of Eden when the serpent came to Eve and tempted her to sin. He questioned whether God was really the authority that she should follow. Was he really good? Was he really trustworthy? And the key moment in Eve's decision to sin was in taking that fruit, which God said, do not eat, and instead saying, it looks pleasing to me. It looks good to me. Let's have it. The sin that Eve committed was not eating fruit. The sin that Eve committed was saying, I determine what is right, not God. I am my own authority, not God. I judge what is good, not God. You see, at the heart of every sin is not the particulars. It's not the, the thing we lied about. It's the fact that we said, God said, do not lie, and I have determined, I have a reason that is better than God's word to lie. And so sin is rebellion against the authority of God. It is rebellion against God's right to be God. When we sin, we are saying, overthrow to God. Now, when we recognize that, we don't come to confession and talk about the little things that we have done. We recognize in our heart has been the chant, overthrow. And that makes confession a far more pleading thing. But here is the thing. If that is what sin is, if sin is rejecting God's authority, if it is rebellion against God's right to be God, can God overlook it? Can God allow that in his kingdom to say, it's okay that you have in your heart the desire to overthrow me. We'll, we'll find a way to work that out. Can these things coexist? Can God's kingdom be filled with people who cry overthrow in their hearts? No. It is a zero-sum situation. Either sin gets to multiply, or God has to remove all of the presence of sin. It is, it is separation. There is no way to put the two together. And so if we recognize in our hearts that we have sinned, that we have committed rebellion, that we have said overthrow to God, there is only one thing that we can anticipate from a God who is Lord. Judgment. And there should be no shock at that. 
If you were to disobey your CEO who told you, go and do something, you would not be shocked to be fired. So let us get to the point where we recognize in the authority of God's word that, that, that God has the authority to judge and we deserve it when we have disobeyed. But more importantly than just recognizing the authority of Scripture, we need to recognize that Paul says this is the authority of all Scripture. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus declares of the Old Testament that not one jot or tittle of that word will pass away. Every dot on the I, every cross of the T is part of God's word. There's not a single aspect of it that fades away or that loses its authority. And then in the New Testament, John speaks to his apostles in the upper room and he says of the apostles that you will, ta- you will have the Spirit who will come to you and will communicate to you my words and those will be the words you communicate. And so the New Testament is also the authority of Scripture. Standing behind, standing behind all Scripture then is Jesus. So all Scripture from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22, except for the concordance, uh, that was a small one, small joke, uh, is, is God's word and has that authority behind it. Now perhaps you might be asking with a bit of a skeptical mind, how do we know that other religions and their sacred writings are not authoritative? What right is there for me to say that the book of Mormon or uh, the Quran is not also the authoritative word of God? Well, there are many things that I could say in answer to that. But the easiest and quickest one is this. Our scriptures are underwritten by the only one who died and rose from the dead. The only one who said, I am the Messiah, I am the Christ, I am the Son of God, and came back from the dead to prove it. That puts the scriptures of our Bible in a far different place than it does any other religion. So when we come to the reality that all scripture has the authority of God, scripture's authority means we don't pick and choose the scriptures we accept. We all are probably familiar with Thomas Jefferson's Bible. He was anti-supernaturalist. He didn't buy the miracles. He thought that couldn't happen. And so his solution was just to cut those parts out. He had a Bible that had no miracles in it. He was okay with its ethical instruction, but as far as everything else, he cut that out. But that is not what it means to submit to Scripture's authority. We do not get to pick and choose what is authority and what is not. Look at the four uses that Paul gives us in this text for Scripture. He says it's for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, and for teaching. As you hold to the authority of Scripture, do you hold a Bible that can correct you? Do you hold a Bible that can reprove you, that can say, you're wrong? That's what it means to have a Scripture with authority. Augustine said, uh, right over here, (laughs) Augustine said, if you believe what you like in the Gospels and reject what you don't like, it is not the Gospel you believe, but yourself. Do you see the difference? If we do not accept all scriptures, but only accept the scriptures that we accept, then we are our Lord and not God. So as Christians, 
We need to recognize that we witness to the lordship of Christ by submitting to the authority of Scripture. The Apostle John in his first letter says it quite bluntly. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So there is a connection between confessing Christ alone and living by Scripture alone. This calls for personal examination. Is there any scripture that you are not submitting to? Now the second attribute that we need to see also comes from that Greek term theopanoustos. It is this, that God's word is fully trustworthy. And this keys off of the second aspect, the panoustos, which is breath or exhalation. Scripture's nature is that it is the breath of God. It is the voice of God. We call scripture inspired because it is filled with the uh, spiration, the breath of God in it. And so when we pick up our Bible, we are reading God's words that have been communicated with the, with the use of human authors, but in a form that remains completely and accurately God's word. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21 describes the nature of Scripture. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Scriptures are not from the will of man, but they have been by men who have been carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so, when we take the Scriptures in our hand... It is God's word. It is from God. And therefore, it is like God in that it is incapable of error, which is its infallibility. And because it is infallible, the scriptures that we hold in our hands are free from error, which is to say they are inerrant. That's the first two blanks on the back of your your handout. Psalm 12 says this, verse 6, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. The idea of of smelting, of purifying silver, was to, to burn all of the impurities out of it. And God says that his word is like silver burned and fired up seven times so that there is no presence of any contamination at all. Now, I have come from a skeptical background. I tested Scripture. I wondered whether Scripture was true. And so I recognize that there may be some here who are thinking, isn't this a circular argument? What about Bible difficulties? What about all of the reported contradictions? What do you say to that? Well, I can only give you a brief answer to each of those. But I can tell you this, and this is what I discovered for myself. When you read it, you hear truth. You don't just find these verses that say it is truth. When you read it, you hear truth. You don't just hear historical truths. You read a book who knows the truth about you. He knows the truth about your heart. The scripture knows its subject better than any book I've ever read. And it examines your heart because it knows your heart. Because the author of scripture is the one who made you. 
And so it speaks truth, and you hear truth. Moreover, it knows things profoundly. In, the, in a couple weeks, we're going to start a series on the Lord's Prayer. You know how many words the Lord's Prayer actually has? 57. 57 words. When Jesus was asked, teach us how to pray, he did it in 57 words. And they're perfect. As we study that prayer, it is exquisitely complete and profound. It is ancient, but it has remained timeless. You pick up Genesis, which speaks of of situations thousands of years ago, and yet it still speaks to something in us. It is proven inexhaustible in its depth. I am currently in the middle of a Ph.D. program, and there are many people that take Ph.D.s that have no uh, regard for the Word of God. But here's something amazing. There are thousands of students working semester after semester studying this Word. Whether they believe it or not, they are still finding new things to talk about, new connections, new uh, insights. We have studied this word for all, time, for all of human history, and we still are learning from it. That is a profound book. We can also talk about answered prophecy. How does a book know what is going to happen hundreds of years later except by being the word of God? And finally, I would say, look at Jesus. Does reading the story of Jesus not captivate you? I mean, what's wrong with Jesus? You, you can't say anything's wrong about Jesus. He is actually a righteous man and a righteousness that is compelling. His truth is profound. You study Jesus and you find truth. What about difficulties? Yeah, there are some hard parts. There are some apparent tensions. I don't have an answer for every single one of those, but I can tell you this much. As I work on difficulties, I find that they do resolve themselves. And as, as many scholars work on Bible difficulties, the record is that there are continually less of them than there were. All I am saying is that these difficulties that used to be stumbling stones, many of them have been resolved. There's a lot less than, than are argued exist. And they continue year after year to decrease. So the trend of the scripture is again and again to prove itself truthful and reliable. But my most important question to you in response is, have you tasted it? Have you tasted the scriptures for yourself? Or are you just picking up some blog? Taste the scriptures. Jewish students, as little children, come into school called Beit Sefer, is school of the word. And on the very first day, the rabbi puts on their Bible a dollop of honey. And the, and the task that he tells all these kids to do is to take that book up to their lips and lick off that honey. And as they are licking off that honey, he reads these words from Psalm 119, taste for yourself. These words, uh, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And he says that this is the word that you are going to work until it is as sweet as honey to you. And I can tell you, people who have gotten into the word, the reason they love the word is because they have tasted that sweetness. 
And so I call, I, I, I encourage everyone here, taste for yourself. Taste the honey of the word. The third attribute that we need to see here is that God's word is sufficient. God's word is sufficient. Verse 17 tells us that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We see that the word of God is profitable. What does that mean? But that God's word has a point. God's word is not just a a wax nose that is subjective. It has a point. It is a plumb line that we use to measure truthfulness. But when we look at its sufficiency specifically, it is sufficient to make us, as the word says, complete. If you take the word, it will give you all that you need to be a complete man of God. It gives you everything to equip you for every good work. Not just some good works, but every good work. God has given us a word that is complete and sufficient so that we can say this, and this is important, no additional word from God is needed, nor should it be sought. There is great freedom in knowing that the word of God in our hands is complete, is sufficient, because it tells us immediately that any subsequent claim of revelation from the Roman Catholic Church, any new dogma, any new book that's called the Word of God, like the Book of Mormon, or any pastor on TV who says, God has told me for you to send me 20 bucks, has no authority. And you are free from hearing that and responding to it. This is why we practice expositional preaching here. This is why I take a passage of Scripture and preach through it, because the Word is sufficient. Do you practice in your life the sufficiency of the Word of God? What does it look like to live out a belief that the Word of God is sufficient? It's to take up and read. It's to apply it to your family, to read it with your wife, to read it with your kids, to work through it endlessly. Because in it is everything that you need to be equipped for every good work. Now the fourth attribute, God's word is for us. We have seen that God's word is authoritative, that it is fully trustworthy, that it is sufficient. But maybe the most beautiful thing about it, it's for us. It's for us. Paul, again, is at the end of his life, and he is in such an urgent condition to make sure that the word of God is not lost to the next generation. And so he gives these instructions to Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. What Timothy needs for his ministry is a firm confidence and conviction to preach the word And if I were to single out the number one reason that Paul is using to charge him with preaching the word, it's these words of Jesus Christ, that he is to judge the living and the dead. The word must be preached because judgment is coming. As we saw under the authority of the word, we deserve judgment. We have cried overthrow. And the word of God tells us that judgment is coming. And so we must preach the word because it has been given to save you from judgment. The only authority in this world that knows what happens when you die, 
is the Scriptures. Because it is the only book that has been underwritten by the one who has been put to death and raised again. And the authority of the Scripture says there are only two outcomes for every single person. You either repent of your sins and trust in the cross of Jesus Christ and enjoy his presence in heaven, or you go where those who go say overthrow go, and that is out of his presence for eternity. We need the scriptures. We need to know that they are for us because as Paul tells us, we have a condition called itching ears. Our ears want to find some other message than repent. We want to find some message that says we're okay. The world tells you to follow your heart. That's the authority. Follow your heart. But what is the heart? Jeremiah the prophet said it perfectly. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart will finish the bag of cookies every time. It finds ingenious ways to break off a small piece, to take five minutes to make sure nobody else had one, take another. Your heart will get the whole bag of cookies, even though in your head you know I need to stop. But one more doesn't hurt anybody. That is what the heart does. It has itching ears to be told, eat the next cookie. There was a secretary that one of my coworkers in my engineering days had, and uh, he, her job was to take his documents and work them up to be published. And he would get them back, and he started noticing that there were words that were misspelled in the documents that she was supposed to be editing. And he brought it to her attention. He said, you know, I've given you these documents, but even I noticed that there are a couple misspelled words in here. He said, oh, okay, I'll, I'll take care of that. And time would go on, and the documents were only increasing in spelling errors. And the, the, the manager finally said, you know, are you using spell check? She said, oh, absolutely, I'm using spell check. And the spell check is not finding these, these words here. They're, they're, not, they're not being found. She says, no, no, everything's fine. And it continued to get worse until there were just grossly misspelled errors and a high frequency of them on these papers that are supposed to go out. So he finally says, can you show me... <laughs> how you're using spell check. And so the secretary brought up her computer and there was a little squiggly line underneath a misspelled word and she just naturally went to that word and right-clicked and said, add to dictionary. So the dictionary was no longer able to correct her because she was filling the dictionary with misspelled words. So here's what's happening. She was spell checking with her heart. Her heart says, that word's right to me. And so she changed the dictionary. And after time, these documents got more and more gross in their inaccuracies. Can you imagine what they look like after months of this behavior? And then let me ask you, what is the only outcome of those documents that have all those misspellings? Do they go in the mail? Do they go onto the, to the memo desk? The only thing that can be done with those documents is to throw them away. They are trash. Now imagine how your life looks after the countless times you have replaced God's word 
for what your heart wants to do instead. You are not just a document. You were created to be an image bearer of God. And every time that we sin, every time that we say overthrow and overrule, we take that image of God, we deface it, we mark it, we make it ugly and unrepresentative of the one whom it is supposed to reveal. Our sins have so corrupted and defaced that image that it is a parody of God's goodness. It is a parody of God's glory. It is a mockery to your creator. And just as it is obvious that a misspelled document has no place but to be thrown in the trash, what should God do to all of his image bearers who have decided to make a grotesque image in its place. It is a reasonable thing that we would be thrown away, that we would be incinerated and removed. And the reason I bring this up is that there are many reasons that we can trust Scripture, but perhaps the most important is that we know that the Scriptures and from the Scriptures are about a God who is determined to save his people and not destroy them. The heart of God is shown to us in the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Listen, the same heart that lies behind the gospel lies behind every word of scripture. It has been given for us to save us, to protect us, to assure us, to love us, to guard us, to draw us into deeper and more intimate fellowship with the Creator who lets us call Him Father. That is the heart of Scripture. A theologian I love who was reflecting on the Gospel said this, you can trust a God who bleeds for you. You can trust a God who bleeds for you. When we receive Christ The word of God does not condemn us. Rather, it restores us and conforms us back into the image of God's beloved Son. Through the gospel, Christ washes us clean. Through the water of his word and presents us to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. You who were destined for the trash can and rightfully so, myself included, was washed clean by the word so that we can be before him unblemished without stain, covered in splendor, and the object of his joy. That's the heart of the word. It is for us to neglect it, to deny it, to put it on the shelf is to say, I want to continue bearing a marred image. I want to continue separate from you. I want to continue not to hear your love for me, your desire to have fellowship with me. You're saying that to the one who has engraved you upon his hands. The word of God is for us. 
taste its sweetness. It is sweeter than honey. The God who gave you the scriptures is also the God who in Jesus died and rose from the dead for you. If you can trust him to save you, you can trust every word he has given to you. So in this passage, we see those four attributes of scripture, of of authority, of trustworthiness, of sufficiency, and of being for us. And I really just want to boil it down to this. Last week we asked, do you know him? This week I want to ask, do you listen to him? Do you listen to him? What reason do you have for not listening to him? This question is not simply academic. In this world we need an authority that we can trust with our lives. Last year I lost my uncle to a prolonged health fight. And in his fight, I watched a lot of the powers and authorities of this world prove to be powerless and helpless. The authority and power of human wisdom and intelligence failed. The authority and power of modern medicine and technology failed. The authority and power of the American dream failed. The authority and power of a positive mental attitude failed. The authority and power of our culture to offer comfort in the face of death failed. There was only one authority that was not overcome. The word of God. The scripture alone has the power and authority to declare everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Thankfully, my uncle has trusted in this message. And therefore, the message of salvation did not let him down. The word of God is the only word that you can trust with your life. Have you responded to it? Have you called upon the name of the Lord? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love. We thank you for the fact that you have given us a word that has all authority and truthfulness and sufficiency, and that is for us. Father, help us to love you by loving your word. Help us witness to the Lordship of Christ by submitting ourselves to Scripture. And most of all, Father, help us to cling to this word, which has the power and the authority to declare that we are saved by our faith in Jesus Christ alone. And so, Father, because we trust in your word and your word is sweet and good to us, we pray the words that Christ has given us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.